page 24 in your booklets, chapter 8, section 4. He endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified and died and remained in a state of death, yet his body did not decay. On the third day, he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. In this body, he also ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of his father, interceding. He will return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. And we got through 24, I think, last week. Um, and so we will pick up after footnote 24 there. Uh, and that is that he endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely painful sufferings in his body. And we've got a few texts there. Who wants to take uh, Matthew 26? We have a volunteer for that? Howard. Luke 22. Tyson, and Matthew 27. Dave, we, the lesser, <laughs> to, to use the biblical language. <laughs> All right, go ahead, Howard, Matthew 26. And taking with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And verse 14. And 38. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Okay. So we're just after Easter, just after Passion Week, and so some of these are recent in our memory, the sufferings of Christ. Uh, Luke 22. Who had that? That was Tyson? And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Okay. Thank you. And then, uh, Dave, Matthew 26, 27. Okay, very good. Okay, so this is all to undergird uh, the statement here that he endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely painful sufferings in his body. And again, we don't, maybe don't need to belabor it, but it's come through very clearly, I hope, how critical and how important the real humanity of Jesus is. And when we're talking the real humanity, we are talking his body, but we are also talking about his nature, his soul. Okay, And so he is grieved in body and in soul. He is emotionally tormented. Uh, and if you have faced emotional uh, struggles in your soul, you realize that sometimes those seem much more pronounced and much more acute than physical pain or physical trauma. And Jesus suffered both because he was truly a man with a real human nature, a real human soul. I'm not sure if there's more to add there. Any discussion on that? Good to move on. Then let's carry on. He was crucified and died and remained in a state of death, yet his body did not decay. And who wants to take that passage in Acts? Wrong. Okay, so you see here, this is an important theme as we work through the Gospels. Uh, Luke, in the book of Acts here, connects David 
to his grandfather, or he connects Jesus to his grandfather David. And so there is continuity. Jesus is following in the footsteps of David, and yet there's also discontinuity because Jesus is a better David. And so Jesus doesn't remain dead like his grandfather David did. And this theme of continuity and discontinuity is important when we're, well, even when we're working through a gospel like Matthew, where you see both. This isn't some kind of brand new thing out of nowhere uh, that Jesus comes. It's clearly in continuation uh, with the Old Testament. Uh, This is one prolonged story. And yet there are really things that are different in the new covenant after Christ than were before in the old covenant uh, in the time of promise of Christ. And so there's a promise and fulfillment theme, but there's also a a vast body of continuity um, to show the unity of this story. This is one prolonged story that God is telling uh, through history. And so Jesus' body does not see corruption because he only remains dead for a, a short period. But he is really dead. Any more discussion on that? Some of this is circling over things that we've already discussed, so maybe maybe it's in the vault and we can keep moving. But don't hesitate to speak up if you've got something to say. On the third day, he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. And who wants to take 1 Corinthians 15? Kenan. Okay, good. So again, a familiar passage that this resurrection didn't come out of the blue. This was promised according to the scriptures and Christ fulfills it perfectly. Okay, so he doesn't remain in the state of death. Uh, And then the next note there on that sentence is uh, footnotes 28 and that would be John 20. Do we have a volunteer for John 20? Howard. Okay, so again, is this the same body that died? Yes, it is. Does this resurrected body ever get corrupted? Does it die again? Or is this an eternally incorruptible new body? See continuity and discontinuity? It's the same body. But there's something, there's some kind of transformation that it's gone through, that it is no longer corruptible. It can't die again. It's an eternal, incorruptible spiritual body. And we've had some interesting discussion at men's night about how how does this work. And there's many gaps that we really don't know because scripture doesn't fill it in for us. Um, But we can see continuity and discontinuity here. Clearly it's the same body. But something about it is different. It's, It's undergone... Uh, a spiritual transformation of some form or another. And that leads to different discussions. I had one recently. What age are we when we're resurrected? Interesting question. We probably all thought of it. Could we find that answer anywhere in Scripture? I, I, I wouldn't know where to start. Some people have suggested we're at the same age that we were at death. But how does that work? Because if you die at 97 years old, and you're frail, what does that look like? What does frailty and old age look like in the new heavens and new earth? I I don't know. Does it seem fitting that there's reminders of the old world in the new world to remind us of what God has done for us? Do we take our memories with us into the new creation? Probably, I think. 
I wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but I would think, because those painful memories aren't painful in the new creation, if anything, they would serve as reminders of what God has delivered us from in the age that was. Right? And Jesus bears reminders of the age that was in his own body. Right? There's reminders of corruption even in his resurrected body. So how does that work? I, I don't know. People have speculated also um, that we are going to be in our early 30s in heaven because that is uh, kind of the age of our physical and mental prime. And that's when Jesus died. I think, yeah, it maybe makes sense on the surface. I think that's pretty speculative. I don't know that I'd find chapter and verse to support that. We don't know. But we do know uh, that it's the same body that goes into the ground at a funeral. That same body comes out. This much we know. It's not a different body. It's the same body in incorruptible form. Continuity and discontinuity, both. And whatever reminders remain of the corrupt world that we're currently living in, whatever of those reminders come with us into the new creation won't hurt us anymore. If anything, they'll give us gladness of what God has done, what he has accomplished. Did everyone hear Alfred? If not, I'll repeat it. I've been told to repeat things through the PA. So Alfred's comment is, uh, using the example of David and Bathsheba, does that reminder of their sin carry over? And Alfred suggested it probably does, and I would probably tend to agree with that. Now, is David going to be living in turmoil and regret and kicking himself for eternity, what he did with this woman? Or if that reminder is there, is it a, a, a permanent, eternal reminder of God's goodness to David for forgiving him for that terrible sin. Okay? To the degree that those memories come with us into the new creation, I think it's a reminder of God's goodness. It's not that we will feel smaller, that we will live with eternal regret. Rather, we will live with an eternal reminder of God redeeming even the sinful parts of the story. More on that. I am curious, because this was a huge, huge, huge paradigm shift for me. Um, perhaps one of the biggest ones I've gone through in my life. Um, so don't feel embarrassed by me asking this. But I am genuinely curious. Whose perception of the resurrection was that the body that we currently have, it's the same body in incorruptible form. And who thought of heaven as a gaseous place where we're floaty things, holograms, so to speak? To me, that was heaven. Every funeral I've been to, whether rightly or wrongly, I interpreted the message as Grandpa already has been resurrected. I, I mistook the intermediate state that departed believers are currently in. I mistook that for being heaven, as in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and I... Maybe I just misunderstood and I was working with a certain paradigm. I don't know. But the idea that the same body is physically resurrected, the same as Jesus being the first fruits, that was, it took me a few times like, okay, so it's still me? Yes, it's still you. And it's still here? Just everything's renovated, recreated? Yes, it's, it's physical, it's solid. Like for me, heaven has never been a gaseous thing or whatever. For me, heaven is 
God created the earth and he said it was good. I, I told you he created who had a new earth. I, I totally expect the mom climbing and looking for things or whatever happened and how to just enjoy the body in the But I couldn't prove it wrong. That's the way I like to look at it. The reality is we can't even comprehend the goodness that's coming. We can't. Our minds are not even capable of it. So it's going to be the, the thing that I really enjoy the most in life is, is nature and doing my thing. Like in, in the woods, right? That's not for me. So that's the best that I can comprehend. So that's where my mind goes. It's like it's going to be so much fun to be like my people doing stuff in the mountains. Like, you know, so that's, that's where my mind goes. But where, what happens? What is it when we die now and we're in the presence of the Lord? Like soul, mind, spirit, like what? That. Well, that's what is. So sometimes it sounds like we have an answer if we can give something a name. <laughs> but, but just having a name for something doesn't answer our questions. That's what's. And this is where my confusion has rested for most of my life. Is that's what's called the intermediate state. It's that time where we wait for the resurrection at the end of history. But we really are, in a spiritual sense, in the presence of the Lord. Right, just like in, in Jesus' story of Lazarus, they're they're spiritually present, either in the bosom of Abraham, closeness with the Lord in the presence of the Lord, or in the chains of gloomy darkness, also awaiting a resurrection body that will never perish, despite eternal torment in the lake of fire. Both both groups are waiting for a resurrection body, but if we know not nearly everything about the new created heavens and earth we know much less about that intermediate state. And to me, in my mind always, and that's why I'd be curious on a straw poll, to me, the intermediate state was just the last chapter. From probably till about 10 years ago. I just thought that, well, that's just the last chapter. There's nothing more after that. Until I was helpfully told in a book on the resurrection that there's life after life after death. And that heaven's not our home. We're just a passing through. <laughs> right? We're waiting. There's another chapter. And that was a, a happy paradigm shift for me, but it was a big thing for me to get over. Yet, Jesus didn't shed off his physical body when he was resurrected. It's real. It's physical. It's, it's made of meat and bones. What about when people say he's asleep with Christ? How do you He's asleep with Christ? Okay. Depends on what someone would mean. So some... Because there's an absence of information... That tends to be bad for us because we do lots of speculating. Um, there is a doctrine that some people hold called soul sleep. Seventh-day Adventists hold to soul sleep. And there's some others that do as well. Where essentially there's no consciousness whatsoever between death and the resurrection. Which causes problems. How do we say that to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ? If it's just unconscious soul sleep. So I don't think we can say it's unconscious, and, and maybe that's not what someone means when they talk about a sleepless Christ. It could be a perfectly sound saying that they're just saying their body is asleep, it's waiting to be woken up again, and so they are asleep and get present with Christ uh, in a conscious kind of way. That would be a perfectly fine comment. Um, and then you've got some of the Catholic stuff about purgatory and limbo and stuff like that, which we wouldn't... Uh, hold to. I think that's also highly speculative. Um, where you go to to purgatory to be purged of any remaining sins, so it gets kind of burnt off. Um, so there's there's lots of speculation that's happened about that period, and I don't know what you mean. I, I guess I'd need to know more what how you took it or or how you've understood that comment. Yeah, I wouldn't know either. I think it would depend on what, on the individual saying it. If it would be saying they're it's soul sleep, I, I, I probably couldn't go there. If they're saying they're waiting the resurrection, and and they're in this unnatural period of time where body and soul are divorced from each other, which is incredibly unnatural and temporary, but that they're consciously with Christ, I think it's a perfectly good, sound saying. There was another hand here. Yep. 
It, it could be, yeah, because sometimes sleep is used interchangeably with death in the Bible. Right? When Jesus says the little girl's just asleep, well, no, she's dead. But that is a way that we talk about death, and it can be perfectly fine. Vern? Well, one where I always kind of grabs a little bit of comfort for us, and I'm not saying it out. 2 Samuel 12, verse uh, 23, and I have a shot. You brought up David and Bathsheba. This is actually when the baby is dying. Um, David is toxic, but it's what he says. It's written by Samuel, but it's quoted for this quotation mark. And he says, But now he's died. Why should I fast? And I bring him back. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now you might, some people think, Well, he, he died, I'm going to die. But I, I read that that they'll be, they'll be together and they will, to some extent, yeah, no, and I think that's a perfectly sound implication of that. So Vern just mentioned 2 Samuel 12, 23, that after David and Bathsheba's baby dies, David says, I, I can't, you know, can I bring him back? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And so there's some sense that after death, they're going to be together some somehow. Yeah, and I... I think that's totally reasonable. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, but I'm curious now, and don't feel embarrassed, because I'm going to put my hand up in the unorthodox camp here. Um, but I, I'm genuinely curious how people think about this. Who would have had the conception that death, the, the separation of body and soul is the final chapter for the human, that that is the resurrection? Okay, it's relatively few of us. Who had in view a physical resurrection in a recreated cosmos? Okay, that's encouraging. Good. That's quite encouraging. I guess I've always the dead in Christ will rise first. Yeah. So there's something more than after we die. That's where I was taught exactly what I was going to look at what's in between that I don't understand. The dead in Christ will rise first tells me that there is a yeah, and for me, after I saw that, it seemed so obvious, and then all the pieces fall in place. But I don't know how many times I've had a paradigm shift where all of a sudden, okay, I've, how did I not see that? Because that's so blatantly obvious. It's been punching me in the face for 30 years, and now, now I notice. The history of what heaven will actually be, I guess I've always had a bit. I didn't believe we were sitting on clouds playing harps. We were actually farming and driving trucks, and that's another thing hard for me to understand. I, Mark Lowry, the great theologian, I mean comedian, yeah. <laughs> said that Einstein's brilliance and Disney's imagination is what a kindergarten play compared to what God has prepared for us. Hmm. It's a bit of a physical picture of we won't understand it, we won't grasp it. But. Yeah, that's good. Lisa? Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting comment. If if little children can uh, reach into the den of a, an adder and lion and lamb will lay together, yeah, that would imply children in heaven. Uh, I'm not one who believes in pet resurrection, but it seems on the basis of the descriptors of heaven and even 1 Corinthians 15, it does appear that there's animals in the new creation. Every indication is that there are animals in the new creation as well. Does, does that mean Toto is going to go to heaven? Well, it depends if he was a good dog or not, I guess. <laughs> and no cats. Cats are Pharisees. <laughs> Burn. Yeah, well, and, and that. Yeah, and I think that's an important piece there, too. If, if we look at, and this is a, to me, one of the most 
beautiful elements of theology is to do biblical theology, not just systematic theology, but biblical theology, like reading the story. The theme of marriage, divorce, and marriage is common. How many divorces happen in the Bible? And they're painful and terrible. And death is a divorce. Getting kicked out of the garden is a divorce. Right? And, and how does history end with a wedding feast, with this being brought back together? Right? The New Jerusalem rejoined. Heaven and earth rejoined. So there is a great divorce right now. Heaven and earth are separate right now. But that's a weird, unnatural, uncreated, temporary arrangement. We are awaiting the wedding feast of the Lamb. This, this is going to be, the pain is going to be healed when it's put back together. Yeah. And, and I do believe, based on the language of 2 Peter 3, where it talks about the world of, Mo, or of Noah was destroyed. The world was destroyed. So I don't take that as annihilation of this planet. Because this, this world has already been destroyed. But the same ball is spinning. So I don't think this planet is annihilated and replaced with a different one. Because this world has been destroyed probably several times already, and yet we are still here on the same ball. I think what happens is these ages or these successions of worlds uh, can happen at the same physical place. And so a reuniting of heaven and earth, I don't think, is, uh, is a foreign concept to Scripture. And, and we do still talk that way, right? Ty and Mike farm on my grandpa's old farm, um, same farm. When my grandpa was growing up in the 30s, he wouldn't have pictured hydroelectricity running robots and diesel-powered everything for the field. Right? So my cousins are on the same farm, but it's a completely different world. Okay? Same physical place, different world. A succession, a new age has come and replaced it. And, and that's how I would understand uh, the destruction and recreation theme. It's the same stuff, just in new, uh, new form. Same as our bodies, really, just on a grander scale. For a new heaven. Well, I, okay, a couple things. In the biblical cosmology, there's three heavens. And this is going into kind of weird stuff. But there's, there's heaven, um, which is everything above the ground. Birds fly in heaven. 747s fly through heaven. Okay, so this is the first heavens. Uh, and then there's, in the, again, in the biblical conception, there's the firmament which in scientific language, I would say we would call that the ozone layer. There's the separating barrier between the first heavens and the second heavens. So the second heavens is where satellites are and where stars are. And the third heavens is the presence of God. And that's the weird one that, who's been there, who, who knows. Um, but to say that the heavens would be in need of restoration, it, clearly, if, if we're going to have weather that's, Redeemed. If we're going to have planets and stars that are redeemed, uh, I'd say we do need a new heavens. Not in the sense of in the presence of God, but the, the cosmos needs to be made new, including things that don't touch the ground. Okay, so you're okay. I never, I never perceived it that way. Okay. Uh, I'll have to bet it be on that. But the, my perception was always that. Yeah, but my, my, my thing was, why does that begin? Like, I think so. I think if we would apply it to the throne room of God, the third heavens being renewed, what would that look like? Well, there's no corruption surrounding God. Perhaps if we apply it there, the newness of it is that it's rejoined again. So it's of a different nature, not that it's currently corrupt, but that yeah. its rejoining of earth like, is a renewal of some sort. And that could well be. Yep. But but in in any of those cases, the main the big ticket item is the rejoining. 
of heaven and earth and, and everything being corrupt. I wouldn't say it doesn't apply to the third heavens. Yeah, no, I, I, I really like I really like the science. I don't know why the world that way. Well, you're in good company because lots of things hit me and then all the pieces fit together and like, wow. I, I, and if I'm way out to lunch, then I apologize for teaching you the wrong thing. Peter. So you're asking how that fits with a restored heavens and earth? Right, and I agree, that is the language. What I'm saying is, what does it mean that God destroys the world? He destroyed it in the time of Noah, and clearly we're on the exact same planet as Noah. Right? But Noah's world was destroyed. I'd say Abram's world has been destroyed. And I'd say Moses' world has been destroyed. And on a smaller scale, my grandpa's world has been destroyed. But there is coming a final destruction when elements, to, again, to use the language of 2 Peter 3, that all the elements are destroyed with a fervent heat. Well, what does that mean? I don't think it means annihilation of the planet. I think it, it's like the language of gold and, and dross. The elements of the world... Uh, don't think carbon and neon and the periodic table. The elements of this world, again, in biblical cosmology, are the spiritual principles of the world. So the elements being burned up with a fervent heat is all the idolatry, all the false gods, all the false worship, all the sin, all the death, all the corruption is burnt with a fervent heat. And the remarriage of heaven and earth, the renewed new heavens and new earth, takes place in a, in a remarriage. But destroying this world means, yes, as we know it, but I don't think it means God starts with a new solar system. Would that, would that be also unbelievers then? In a sense, yes. Uh, yeah, I'd say it would have to, because they are part of the elemental principles of, of the kingdom of darkness. So they would be they would be swept up in that judgment. Um, and again, the fire language carries through to the lake of fire, to eternal destruction. Don and then Jolene. If we think that God created this world out of nothing, and Eden was perfect, we don't know what Eden was anymore. Uh, he destroyed it in the days of Noah. It's totally possible for him to burn the skin off of this ball and put a brand new face on it. And that's exactly, I think that is the biblical, if we think in terms of biblical cosmology, instead of 1950s and beyond scientific cosmology, which we have been trained in, this isn't just window dressing, this is deep worldview stuff. Can we see the world like the biblical authors did? The way we conceive of it, even physically in our mind, is very, very different. The way we conceive of firmaments and heavens, and, and, and it's a challenge in a scientific age. This isn't anti-science by any stretch. Science is wonderful. But the cosmology and the makeup and the, this, this three-story universe that we live in, that's a big deal, I think, if we're going to be honest with the biblical language. You can totally renew what's here now, or it may look completely different, right? Right, and we don't know what... They still the chain of numbers that might not exist anymore. And how different did the physical features of the world look after Noah got off the ark than before he got on it? Probably very different. It was a different world. God did destroy the old world, and he created a new one. And he's done it a few times since, and I think, I think we've got at least one more in store. <laughs> Jolene. Says the heavens 
Okay, well, that's that's exactly to uh, to the point Lisa was making that the heavens are rolled up as a scroll. I think that's fitting with the destruction and recreation language. That this this era, this time, this world is going to get put aside for this remarriage to happen. It will get burnt up. These elemental principles are burnt up. They are restored. They are. Re- Personally, I believe both can happen. Like, I, like for me, I believe I believe the burning of the elements is a technology statement. I believe that the Bible is quoted, and and uh, I, I literally do believe like it's just nuclear fusion. Like, I, like literally the elements, like the atomic particles. There's so much corruption, like everything is corrupt. And God's going to wipe off the, the, the corruption completely and start it. Will will the honest plan absolutely everything on this planet? I think I think. And, and I think that also includes governments, games, rulers, blah, 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 all, all the crap that's out here, the crap that's out here. But there's also corruption. There's also corruption uh, that, that's not humanity. Like the physical, the corruption of, of the planet is, is corrupt as well. Like everything is corrupt. Cancer cells and pneumonia. And, yeah, and all yeah. this is going to go. It's all going to go. And I believe, I believe that it's, it literally is going to be like all Like God's not going to have any corruption in this presence. It's going to be gone. Yeah, and I don't think anyone should disagree with that statement. I have heard it in very specific reference to the atomic bomb. People who lived during World War II very much thought they were living at the end of the world. Well, that is, that is what the burning of the elements of the U.R. were assigned to. I don't know why you think it's that. But if you're going to go to the scientific term, that's exactly what's happening. Like it's a destruction on the atomic level. Yeah, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that. I wouldn't want to confine it to something like that. But but I think I think certainly there is room because there is corruption that's not human in nature, right? Like cancer cells, like pneumonia, like malaria, and none of that clearly is going to transfer into the new creation. Yeah. Yeah. But I would go back and say, will there be iron and copper in the new world? Absolutely. Yeah. So, 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 so I don't think the periodic table, I don't think the periodic table melts down. I think the way that we use and abuse certain things, um, for example, even look at the way we do it now. Yeah, nuclear fusion or fission is a great blessing. We could power the entire planet with it, or we can destroy entire cities with it. Right? It, it's it's amoral in itself. But clearly, in a fallen world, it gets used for very destructive, evil purposes. And, and clearly, none of that can carry over into the new creation. Not one bit of it. If there's nuclear in the new creation, it's going to power cities. It's not going to bomb them. Okay, so, um, you know, the Bible says that the I'd say, don't worry about it. Because <laughs> to whatever degree this discussion is misguided, isn't going to alter the perfect outcome that awaits us. I don't, I don't like the mindset that says, don't ask questions. Um, I prefer my way of doing things imperfectly to someone else's way of not trying them at all. That's a quote from D.L. Moody about evangelism. I pre- I prefer my way of doing it imperfectly to your way of not doing it at all. Okay, so let's grant we've got feet of clay. We're going to make mistakes, moral mistakes, theological mistakes, behavioral mistakes. We, we will. That's just life in a fallen world. Um, but I think to cut off curiosity actually impairs our spiritual growth. I, I think to be curious about the Bible and read it with new eyes and say, okay, why... Why does it say that? And then you go do a deep dive. Okay, where does that language occur at other places in the Bible? And and start seeing those things. Sometimes you make mistakes and, and we'll make connections that are clearly wrong and then we can be corrected and so forth. 
But I think it's a healthy exercise to be curious when we read our Bibles. Um, and I would also use that opportunity to, to say what a corrective and what a blessing church history is. Because there's also, if you're the first one in church history to find something in the Bible, or if you belong to a tradition that finds something in the Bible that people have only seen for the last 50 years, you're almost certainly in error. Okay? It's very helpful. This, this is not the Bible. The Apostles' Creed is not the Bible. They're all subservient to Scripture. And yet, church history can really help us to weed out which things are worth planting a flag and saying this is a hill to die on, which things have Christians always had disagreement, like sound Bible-believing Orthodox Christians have... This has been a discussion since the early church. This, you know, Even post-Reformation, not all Christians see this the same way. Those things we can learn to hold with an open hand and be generous. And say, yeah, maybe this, maybe. Right? But if you find something that is novel, it's almost certainly going to go down the wrong road. Church history is a helpful corrective to keep us inside the bounds of orthodoxy. You don't want to be the first one to discover something. It just, they, I've heard it said before, it doesn't benefit us to study uh, what might come because all that matters is that we're saved or not. Well, and that's clearly the most important thing, but I think there's it's worth studying. Does the Bible concern itself to some degree with describing the future state of affairs? I think it does, to some degree. Um... Have there been different views of the future from the beginning of the church? Yes, there have. So we can hold those like this. Have there been different views on, well, I heard an absolutely atrocious sermon from a very local pastor this last week, outrightly denying penal substitutionary atonement, kind of making fun of God's holiness. As though, oh yeah, so God's going to require death for his holiness to be satisfied? <laughs> Everyone laugh with me. That man is in grave danger. Because he has departed from every last ounce of Orthodox Christianity. He's going down a new path. That's scary stuff. Okay? That, that's not something that we as Protestant evangelicals have always disagreed on. Never. That's been the core element of it. So I, I think, again, church history is not infallible, it's not inerrant, but it's very helpful in helping us understand which things, you know, if the church fathers disagreed, if the reformers disagreed, the Princeton men disagreed, the Puritans disagreed, we're probably not going to solve it. So let's learn to get along. And if you're really departing the bounds of orthodoxy, plant your flag there and say, this is truly novel. Everybody, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, everybody's agreed on this. You're going on a new trail. You've got the problem, not me. Right? So I think that's a helpful test to see where we stand in terms of the legitimacy of our understanding of the text. And again, I want to say that without making church history inerrant or infallible, because there are lots of mistakes in church history. But in the mercy of God, not everybody makes the same mistake at the same time. So we can learn. Okay? And people from other ages help us to see the mistakes we're making right now. So it's good to read old dead guys. Because they'll see things all of us are missing. They will. Diane. At the right hand of the Father. <laughs> Which is another way of saying I have no idea. Uh, I, I think what that language does is to convey that there is, there's lots of wedding language, lots of preparation language. I think what's being conveyed is that Christ is in that spiritual third heaven dimension, somehow with a physical body, preparing for that wedding feast at which everything is put back together and made right. So that's how I would take the preparing a house thing. It, it, and we can go into all kinds of biblical cosmology and symbols. It, the New Jerusalem's a perfect cube. 
which is interesting because so was the garden. So was the tabernacle. So was the ark. Like, there's all kinds of stuff happening in that symbolism to, to convey perfection and remarriage happening. So I, that's as far as I would probably push. That's, yeah. I, I, in the temporary state, can we use the language of going up to heaven? Yes. But in the bigger cosmological picture, the biblical imagery is always heaven invading earth. Heaven recolonizes earth and uh, is making it new. And I think that's what the kingdom of God is right now as we go out and preach the gospel. It's the preparation for that. It's tilling that soil, preparing. So the kingdom of God is inaugurated here, waiting its perfect consummation where it comes all the way. But uh, the gospel, in the cosmic sense, is heaven reconquering, recolonizing the earth. There's a wedding feast. It's put back to right. We are at 1020. Any more discussion on this? Are we going to set a record for the most Sundays dedicated to one section? <laughs> Evangeline. One thing that I don't think has been brought up in this whole discussion about body, resurrection, heaven, earth, is time. We can, we can only see time from a perspective. And God, God's time is... We can't fathom how, God, how God's time is, right? And that's something that I haven't been brought up in this Yeah. Yes, so she's making a, a legitimate point about time, and we live in time. We don't understand how life goes on outside of that particular element we, or that dimension. We really don't. We really don't. Anything else before we bring it in for a landing? I'm going to ask for feedback to Lisa's question. Even if we don't have all the answers, is this helpful to explore these themes? Or is it a vain distraction? Caleb? I'd say that it's very important to study geology and all these different, you could say, more minor things. Because like our eschatological view on this or that or the other thing or something else, it's not going to set us ahead or out. But it's going to create, it's going to give us more of a very important drive to learn more about God and the Bible. And, and that's what we're going to force us to have a switch as well. That's what we're going to do. So I think it's very important to say what this is. Okay, good. I liken it to a parent and a person without the grandchildren. When I, when I look at them and I see them learning stuff, I smile. And how much more if I have any problems when I was having stuff talking? Ask questions. Amen. Yep. Those are both good points. And obviously I agree. Otherwise I wouldn't be happy to lead this discussion and I very much am. Very much am. Ron. I think to talk about it, to study it, one of the first time we're not Yeah. Yep. For those who didn't hear, Ron said it's good to talk about it as long as we can be okay with not having perfect answers. Right? We're not going to dot every I and cross every T. We just won't. The Bible doesn't give us enough information to do that. But let's at least leverage the information that the Bible does give us. Let's at least make the most use of that that we can before we say, I, I don't know, past this point. But don't punt on the first down. Put, put solid effort in before punting it away and saying, we just don't know. Yeah, that's one thing that I want to mention with my grandchildren. I go, well, that's, that's not perfect. We don't have it yet. Yep. Yep. You're you're going somewhere. Good. Then let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you for uh, all the wonderful things that your word teaches. Lord, things that are both instinctive to us because we've learned them from young on. Things where we need to undergo serious shifts in our thinking uh, because our minds have been clouded by the time or the place that we live in. Uh, and we need to get deeper into a vision of your world and of the cosmos that are informed by your word rather than trying to force our vision into your word. Lord, we understand that we will do this imperfectly. So forgive us where our questions turn into idle speculation. Forgive us where we hold things too tightly, where we don't know. Also forgive us for holding things too loosely, where you have given us information 
that we have not taken seriously. So Lord, help us to be good students of your word. Help us to read the Bible through the lens of the Bible. Help us to see that scripture is ultimately the final interpreter of scripture and transform our vision of, of our lives, of the world, of the cosmos, of the future, of time. Lord, do that in a way that will lead us into greater holiness, that will lead us into greater discipleship, that will help us to build healthier families, healthier churches, healthier communities, a healthier gospel proclamation. Lord, as we get your word out, help us to get it right and to get it out both. Lord, I thank you for the way you've guided this discussion this morning, and I pray now that you'd be with us as we prepare for the rest of our morning worship here. I pray that you would be praised. Thank you for your kindness to us. Amen.